Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. Welcome to another episode of The Black Codes. You're here with Savannah, and I am virtually sitting with my friend, Donald. Um, damn, we never... <laughs> you and I are both bad at coming up with these adjectives. Um, but yeah, Donald, hi. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? How are you? I am good. I'm recording from my couch. I almost never do. Mm -hmm. But I had laid out a platter of Arby's just now because I had to make some last-minute decisions about eating. I am, in fact, one of those people that keeps Arby's in business. Yo, I did you see that they're dropping, like, a new sandwich? No. It's, like, eight to ten layers of meat. It's, like, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's, like, a piece of chicken, like a breaded piece of chicken, and then a bunch of, like, roast beef ham some other bullshit i don't know but it looks crazy and i i only thought of you because you're the only person that i know that eats arby's but i didn't think that that would be a sandwich you would be running to yeah no nah, that's gonna be a no for me dog <laughs> it's so nasty i it made me think of um remember maybe when we were in high school i don't know if it was taco bell or kfc had that sandwich that was literally two pieces of chicken it was like two yeah. fried chicken tenders with like bacon and cheese oh it's just too much like god if i was like 16 and drank mountain dew or something <laughs> but i'm an adult now yeah i didn't even eat it when i was you know a teenager because that's i love chicken i love chicken tenders i love bacon i love pepper jack cheese but i don't need them like that that was just disgusting <laughs> There are great things to have in pairs or by themselves, yeah. but all at once, that's yeah. just, no, too yeah. much of a good thing. Too much. And for anyone that like indulged in those, your arteries have to be screaming, like still, <laughs> they have to be pissed off at you. <laughs> Shout out to Osmosis Jones, like he's struggling in there. For sure, that's a fact. Oh my God. Well, outside of your RB sandwich, how was the rest of your day? Yo, today has been long. So I am preparing to go to a treehouse retreat in West Virginia. And there's a lot to unpack in just that sentence alone, I know. But today started off as a Tuesday, as in the day life of a gym owner who's growing a small gym, right? Was up at 5 15, a little later than usual, but 5 15. Had a client at 6, did some random work. Oh, I have some, I have so much to talk about. Um, okay. So we've had this conversation about the artist uh, before. Mm -hmm. She came in for a training session and I'm doing a scholar, I'm doing a fundraiser for her scholarship mm -hmm. uh, that she did, that she does for creative. So I might link that at the end. Actually, I have the GoFundMe made, so I can link it at the end. And so we chatted about that, had another session at nine, then had another session at 10, did some more work, another one at one did some more work uh i don't know uh, i saw my mother places i had to go run my mom around so i'm at the age now where like i'm starting to become the parent of my parent um our relationship is starting to drift that way so now i have to do all her errands and things like that of importance mm -hmm. they coached all night and i went to a signing day my one of my youngsters one of the first kids i've ever coached actually since he was like in middle school just signed to go to point park for to run uh, track and cross country nice congratulations Thank you. That's exciting. It's been a full day, and that was fun chatting with his family. You know, as we get 
into uh, our thirties and we're like settling into this sense of adulthood. I know you're allowed to know what you're laughing at. Um, <laughs> I do this every episode, <laughs> but as we settle into this new age bracket and it's like, wow, these adults with teenagers who are in their forties and fifties, you know, they're just talking to us candidly now as they with their own peers. And it's, it's a very marking, uh, turning point of like maturity and age at least when it comes to like social interactions for sure and um yeah i've always thought about how you know when you're younger probably when you're when you're like 25 and younger two to three years is such a drastic difference in terms of where you are in your life you know like a 15 year old is not there are plenty of 15 year olds that have like 12 year old friends that's like nothing crazy but it you're in very different places in your life at 15 and 12 you know and even at like 21 and 17 it's like why are you hanging out with a teenager still but yeah once you like kind of pass that hump it's not that crazy to have a friend if you're 26 to have like 28 29 30 mid 30s late 30s even 40 year old friends you know especially like have you seen the memes um or like the tweets about um working whatever job will have you friends with 50 year olds (laughs) yeah and that was like (laughs) that was that was true for me when i was uh waitressing i had plenty of coworkers. i had like a few coworkers at several of the places that i went that were well into their adult years like close to my mom's age maybe even older that I would just like sit at the bar and have a drink with after work and like do whatever <laughs> so yeah it the, the the 30s are near they're literally right around the corner they're literally right around the corner <laughs> you know very soon okay. but it's it is crazy how the, at this like at pre thirty five pre really pre thirty, the difference three years makes like being twenty two twenty five and twenty eight. You think pre we're so different for so different interactions. You think with, like thirty to thirty five? I don't even think it's that old. I think it like tw- once you hit like twenty five, the years aren't as drastically different. Yeah, I, I, when I think about my experience how people talk to me now this close to 30 is Mm -hmm. still even more casual like how older people talk to me now is even more casual now than it was at 25. 25 is when it started to be casual because at Mm -hmm. 22 it's like oh you're especially if you're like not a fucking dickhead right it's like oh you're the mature young person like you're doing well like it's a more of a pat on the back and Mm -hmm. like encouragement or at 25 they kind of like look at you like you're starting to live life like they do and then when you're like close to 30 you're turning 30 you know 20 29 now they're like you're basically the same as them (laughs) yeah i was definitely still a dickhead at 25. (laughs) i'm like i am starting to see the air of my ways honestly it happened like a year or so ago and i've had to rectify and like just come to terms with some of that shit you know at 25 not that i was ever a menace or crazy um but you know looking back at it i'm I'm 28 i'll be 29 in a few months like i don't know four um (laughs) 
I, I can like visibly go back, you know, four years and see how much I have grown in that time. So that it is true. Maybe I think I like what you said better. 25 is when you start to see it and you just end up being in more spaces with older people. But then you still maybe need a few years to work some of your young wild shit out. Yeah. Like I've had to, my comfortability about being stern about with 40 is about them like paying me the way I want to be paid or, or mm -hmm. like things even on the business end. There's a certain sternness now that I have when I run my business that I have when I Because I right. start, all right, just for y'all, y'all can date me now. I started this, I started this fucking gym. I was like 25 when I started doing private coaching. Yeah. And I was turning 26 when I, I was 26 when I opened the physical gym. And this is at the same cusp of like, you know, getting used to having adult conversation with like people twice my age and now it's like there's a, there's a certain sternness that like not really stern like it's rude but more of a you know i said what i said in this yeah that comes with it that's been helpful yeah um so i was gonna in my head i was trying to figure out how do i segue that i don't have a good one so I'm just back to the treehouse no 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 I forgot you were talking about your treehouse. I was just going to mention we're starting a Patreon oh. at the end of March. Um, just because it's been wild out here, this I, this episode is probably going to drop this upcoming Thursday. Um, so the, it's still February. Yes, it is still February. <laughs> so towards the end of March, we will be dropping a Patreon. We want to hear from you guys, what you would like to hear more of, um, what you'd be interested in getting from Patreon. We have a bunch of ideas already that we're really interested in, excited about. Hopefully you guys will be as well. But obviously we want to get your feedback. Um, and don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. I, Donald usually is the one <laughs> that does this. I'm trying to be a bit better at um, talking about this stuff because it's necessary. We do want you guys to share this information. If you if you think that you've been learning and it's been really helpful, you've gotten a laugh and you've gotten an education, please share it with people that you think will enjoy this and need this as well. Um, and so from that, we can talk about your treehouse, and then I'm very interested to see how you segue that into our topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're a professional, it's what you do. So this weekend, I decided, I've been thinking about this for weeks. I took a New Year's trip, Virginia business planning trip that included some R&R. So I haven't really taken real vacation since like last New Year's right. in the Bahamas. So I'm like, yeah, I need some time off in COVID. While COVID kept closed the gym, that was not time off. That was mad stressful. So it was like, and I'm like feeling burned out. So I was like, you know what? I've been thinking about this for weeks. I need to, I always take a trip before track season starts. Like it's been like a thing I've been doing for years. And I didn't, yeah, and, you know, like in February. It's like always in February. Like, all right, maybe the last week. So I was like, all right, what can I do? I want to go to nobody's beach. I want to do something outdoorsy. I want to have it so that I could not work if I physically tried. Mm -hmm. I was like, I need to be off the grid. You know what? Where can I get a cabin? I've been thinking about taking a cabin trip for years. 
And so I was like, I was on Airbnb, I found this little cabin, but then I found a fucking treehouse. And I was like, ooh, I've never been in a treehouse. I didn't grow up like that. Niggas didn't have treehouses where I lived and not in the neighborhood. So I was like, ooh, what's this treehouse about? So it's no electricity, no running water, 130 acres of woods in the middle of West Virginia. Uh, <laughs> how long are you going? What'd you say? How long are you going? Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday Sunday. Sunday. Well, word. Are you taking like twelve books? Um, maybe not twelve, but probably like six. Okay, I need <laughs> like gangs of books when you go on vacation. Yes, I. So I plan to do some hiking. I'm gonna go running. I'm gonna try not to get lost. I'm gonna, you know, cook. I'm gonna nap. I'm gonna read and write. Oh, I can't wait. Like, yo, I'm so excited. I got yeah. hella books on cue. I'm going to do some writing. I'm going to come back with some new energy next week. It's about to be wild. I just hope, just hope I actually come back next week. So we got to <laughs> park at the people's house to get to the fucking treehouse. Okay. Well, you try to keep someone updated as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Your update will come on Sunday when I'm like, I'm alive, I'm alive. But, you know, I want to do something more outdoorsy. Like, I like being outdoors. A little known fact about me, listeners and Savannah, this is something that not a lot of people know about. I used to be a Boy Scout way back in the day. And uh, this was like fifth and sixth grade, maybe seventh grade too, that I was a Boy Scout. I uh, love making fires and things like that, tying knots and going camping. So I actually do have the camping skills in there. And, you know, it's good, like, to be able to do that kind of thing. And, you know, people make jokes like, black people don't go out in the woods. Like, I got friends that are like, you're about to do what? You're about to sit in a treehouse in West Virginia? Like, Savannah's looking at me like, why are you about to be in a treehouse in West Virginia? You're going to die. I'm not even, like, I'm not super opposed to the treehouse. Um, more so the location. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's me being a bit too judgmental of, this, of West Virginia. Obviously, I'm sure you'll be fine. I hope you have a grand old time. Um, but yeah. I think, yeah, you know, we make our jokes about West Virginia being sketchy, but um, I'm sure there are plenty of places that are decent there. Good old folks there. But, you know, it's good to just be able to get outdoors. And I want to show people, like, this is cool. Mm -hmm. We come, I come from an area where that's just not something that commonly happens. And so then when we get older and we want to explore these sorts of things, you know, a lot of black people are like, Ugh, that's not for me. Or like, who can I do that with? Yeah. And so when we look at who can you do this with, it kind of brings us to our topic today. You find other black people to do this with. So, like, I'm going with somebody else. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily for the same reason, but still fits the bill. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, being able to have peers who you can get together with in these situations that are not commonly for you and historically for reasons that, you know, make you a little cringe. Yeah. Um, you're right. I got introduced to the wilderness definitely much later in my life and it was not with the blacks. <laughs> I don't have a lot of black friends that really love nature. I have I have a handful that are down to just like experiment and try new things, but I don't have a lot that are like actively 
yo, let's make this happen. Let's do this. I want to hang out in the forest for five days and four nights. Uh, let's go. Let's turn up. <laughs> they want to like glamp. They want to go glamping. Like they're cool with that, but not just straight. No internet access in the forest on a tractor. Someone has to drive you to the location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, no running water, no electricity. And, you know, while it's cool that I can do that, not everybody wants to do that. Some of you listening are like, I would, but if I had other people. And when we look at other people, obviously there's a lot of, you know, Caucasian people here that are very into that. There's a lot of them that are not. But, you know, when you think about outdoorsiness, you think about white boys in camos, right? <laughs> and that's not for everybody, yeah. even though they might be great people often, but it's not for everybody. And so what we want to talk to you today about or the importance of Black-centered organizations and having organizations and movements that are catered towards Black people. And we've had moments throughout our lives where we've had to defend that. We have to defend our Black Student Union in college. We've had to defend why there are things like Black Girls Rock, why there are things that have to do with Black pride and Black power, because, you know, a lot of white people here in the U.S. and people even from other places don't understand that. And it really has to do with the history of the U.S. Once again, we come back to these things. And, you know, the black and white relationship in the United States is very particular, and it created the environment for the necessity of this. Yeah, you ran through um, several examples, and you have something here that I'm just going to, like, touch on. This idea of <laughs> because you know some of these spaces are like we talked about the the woods and going hunt and not even going hunting just like being outdoorsy we haven't had the ability to to have that type of leisure time right and and i'm sure there's another there's a, another set of reasons as to why black people don't maybe necessarily want to be alone in the woods <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, there's this there's this idea that like black people don't do certain things or they want to be interested in certain things, and that's simply not true. It's just when you when especially when you're doing something as like an extracurricular thing, you don't want that to be a stress to you. You don't want to feel stressed out about that. You know, you want to be comfortable and you want to relax. And while it might be hard, hiking's not necessarily easy. You want to. Be necessarily, you want to be relaxed while you're doing it and in that environment. So, you have a you have a bunch of stuff to to share about black organizations, why they exist, and just like an example of a few of them. Which, um, just full disclosure, this is our second time recording this episode, guys. Audio on the first one was not great, so I'm gonna. I'm going to do my best at trying to recall my initial reaction. <laughs> Some of it might not be as like, yo, that's wild because I've heard it already, but this shit is wild and it's important. So Donald, take it away. Tell us, tell us more. So what I want you all to get is this particular message when we look at American history is that when we are downplayed and excluded from things, and people want to do stuff, they're going to create their own ways to do it. 
we remember throughout all these episodes we've talked about, when you look at American history, black people have been excluded from activities, not only just being able to hang out and shoot guns, but literally from going to school, from going to college, from being able to go to work, to being able to buy a house, to being able to just exist. And so when existence is excluded and downplayed, when you're not welcome into rooms for generations, it's like, yo, I still want to do this so people create their own things. And so that's really the, the main point that we want to drive home, that these Black-centered organizations exist because we wouldn't be able to do things if we didn't create them. So when we look at a few of these different examples, right, we have historically Black universities. So like Howard, you know, Mississippi State, um, Spelman, Morehouse. These universities were created because... Um, Ohio State, Penn State, Harvard wasn't allowing black students to go to their schools. Like they said, no, nigga, you can't come here. So they're like, oh, you know, some philanthropic people and some ambitious people said, well, we make a school college just for black people. That's why they exist. When you think about even business districts, we've talked about housing economics. White people didn't want us living around them. They didn't want us doing business around them. So you get these places like Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, Haiti District in Durham, North Carolina, Harlem, that are these pockets of black people where these business districts were thriving, right? We'll talk about Tulsa, Oklahoma a little bit later, but these are places where they're packed center with black businesses. And it's not just simply because black people are like, oh, we want to link arms and do business together. It's, we couldn't do business across town. Like We got chased out with guns, so we're going to do it here. <laughs> Yeah, and the irony of all of this is, you know, people being so confused as to why these Black-focused um, organizations exist. It's like, you guys kind of forced this on us. Yeah. <laughs> on us, and then we create them, and you're mad about that as well. So it's not even just about things being separate but equal or Black people being over there, because even when Black people were over there, doing their shit for themselves, niggas still had a problem. I was talking to a few of my friends today that listen to the podcast. Um, shout out to Nika. She's listening to day one, but she messaged me and was like, you haven't said fuck you nigga in a while. Like you haven't said that in a <laughs> And I told her like, yo, I actually had mad fuck yous the first time we recorded this episode. Like we're just letting them go because I was pissed off and I was going to try to remember to bring some of them back uh, <laughs> this episode. I think I'll let them fly a little bit later. But Me and yeah. Savannah had a long weekend that weekend, mm -hmm. and so that first recording was just mad aggressive. Like, out the gate. <laughs> y'all wouldn't have fucked with us if y'all listened to that. Out the gate aggressive, and I was more so con con like concerned about the audio, and Donna was like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the front we like to be spicy, but my nigga, this ain't Indian spice here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I was, I was definitely just like, I think had been in a, not in a mood, but like an attitude space over the last few days. And then when we recorded, specifically what I was given the fuck you's about, I just put like base to it because I just had had enough. <laughs> Say it with your chest, little ass nigga. For real. Took that shit person, and I took that personally. <laughs> See that meme, yo? <laughs> and then I took that personally. 
Oh, I wanted to shout out Donald. He's drinking on his Crown Royal. Oh, shit. We even talk about the drinks. Didn't. Shout out to Crown Royal. Um, shout out to Crown Royal. That's all I got. Um, I'm not going to shout out what I'm drinking. Fuck them. <laughs> You're drinking the colonizer's drink. Colonizer, why, are you, why did you scare me like that? I am literally made only in Lynchburg, Tennessee. So y'all probably know what it is, but I'm not gonna shout them out. Fuck them. Uh, shout out Uncle Nearest though. If you if you really 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 fuck with good whiskey, bourbon, try some Uncle Nearest. But go ahead, Donald. Same <laughs> colonizer like that, like Jury from Black Panther makes me want to watch that movie again. Colonizer. <laughs> Anyways, I wish that would have like caught on a little bit more because it is like just a really funny, you know. Nickname, mm-hmm. I guess, but yes. So you get these other things like uh, I really want to touch on about black women's hair, right? There's a lot of um, interest in you know black women wearing their hair natural, and people are like, why is there all this emphasis on black women's hair, or even just black women really in general, especially dark skinned women, and these ethnic centered aspects of that. When you think about again the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow that there's this essence called passing, and we'll have a whole episode about this eventually, but passing is when someone's light-skinned enough and culturally white enough to pass as white. And so, you know, American culture values everything that's close to white. It's literally right now, if you go on your TV. And so there is now empowerment movements about women who have like 4C hair and 3C hair and things like that, being able to take pride in their hair. But even internally within black people, this this um, white favor favoritism basically has mm-hmm. gone on and make them hate their own, hate their dark skin complexion, caused lighter skinned people to go and tease them about these things. white people might be oblivious to these things, but those things happen, but it's because of this legacy. And so when you don't want to feel bad about yourself, I got I have very curly hair. I have, you know, friends in my skin, very tough, you know, curly hair. And to feel bad about themselves. So the whole society is telling you that you're not worthy or you're less attractive or you're less this. You're either going to succumb to that or you're going to go and boldly take hold of that. And so these things, again, come out of that. Think about organizations, revolutionary organizations, the Black Panthers. We have the Congressional Caucus, NAACP, things like that. These government organizations exist because people aren't revolutionaries because it's just fun, like, that shit comes with a cost of your life, yeah. um, whether you die or go to jail for life, right? It's because their voices are not being heard. And so you create spaces for your voices to get heard. If there's one black person in a room full of 50 white people who don't live that experience and don't value it, but that one person represents a lot of other people, then you're going to have to do something else to get heard. For sure. Um, and yeah, I, it's... I don't want to spend too much time on this, but because we're we're going to absolutely talk about this at another point. But yeah, this idea that like black people coming together and saying enough is enough. Not only do you not want it to be like you don't want to provide for us, you don't want us to provide for ourselves. Um 
and that's we're just not going to do we're not going to do that we're going to do what we need to do for ourselves we're going to do what we need to do for our community and you see the response to that is always negative like the same people that are saying oh you shouldn't be relying on the government you need to put, pick yourself up by the bootstraps do x y and z just like i did the minute black people start doing it it still is an issue you know mm-hmm. people are still now they're complaining about something else so why does it have to be about race or you're just only getting it because you're black and this and that and it's like okay you can actually just come out and say that you're racist <laughs> like you don't have to do <laughs> all of this back and forth because we're not slow I know you would hope that we are, but we're not. Um, yeah. So, so, Jesus. When we look at, I'm like know, the the fuck yous are starting to formulate wow. out of my head. I could feel that. <laughs> You're gonna have some in a second. And, and so, even socially, when we think about, like, there are black outdoors groups, right? Like, I've uh, checked out when I lived in Austin, Texas. You know, some of these black outdoors groups. When I come to Baltimore, I, I run with this black running organization. It's literally what it's called. Again, there's this aspect of whiteness that is normal to America. Like, it sets the tone for what is regular. When people think about regular skin tone, regular. When I go to different countries and I tell people I'm American, they look at me like they're confused a little bit because they're expecting a white person to be American, right? So this white being normal and, and then being made to be the status quo and that things that are not white or then other, you have to be African-American, you're Asian-American, right? Um, you then have the environment to create these black cultural organizations, whether it's a black student union and, you know, black for attorneys and sororities, but that creates that. And so we want to make sure that you understand that piece. So when we look at one, we're going to highlight three particular things that are very drastically, they're drastically different for you. So this first piece, we're going to look at Tulsa, Oklahoma. So in the early 20th century, there was a place called the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A lot of our listeners who are like into, you know, black empowerment type of things, you're certainly aware of this. Others, if you are not, you probably actually never have heard of this. So Oklahoma, you're like, what the hell mattered in Oklahoma anyways, right? <laughs> I've been there. It's pretty flat. Some woods, <laughs> some reservations, you know, some oppression, you know, the regular. So... Tulsa, Oklahoma had this Greenwood district, and it was this place where it had this concentration of black wealth. There was a lot of oil and gas money there, and so um, they were, you know, being able to start um, getting into these industries and learning how to use these things. And so, you know, black is the South, so black people was there, so they were starting to, to reap the benefits of this. But as we talked about with our redlining episodes, our economic discrimination, there was only a couple places black people could really live. And so when you have economically, think about like Pittsburgh and steel mills, when you have this main industry, then it creates room for all these other industries, right? So you have like movie theaters, you have restaurants, nice grocery stores, um, you know, various other recreational activities, um, and all these shopping places. And so this concentrated area had a lot of money, even so much that people colloquially called it the Black Wall Street. It was one of the most... um, excuse me, affluent places for black people to be in the early, early 20th century. Now, we're not going to talk about what happened to it, a.k.a. the white citizens there and the National Guard burning it down, but we'll go there another day. But we wanted to highlight the Tulsa Di- Greenwood District 
because there were several businesses that created a self-sustaining community. And to the extent that there are people who have been inspired by this, when this story got bigger towards the latter part of the 20th century, you know, you have these millennials, especially these generations who want to rethink their community building and how they do business and assets and learning about financial wealth due to this. Even in Pittsburgh alone, we have an organization that's called Greenwood Week, and it's these two black women entrepreneurs that have created an entire week to do black business empowerment educational seminars. There's a guy here in the neighborhood that I do, my that my gym's in called Stephen Long. His real estate company is called Greenwood uh, Greenwood Real Estate. Um, there's this guy named Jay Morrison who's this like semi-popular person who does real estate, and he actually created this Tulsa investment fund based on this. Someone that we went to school with actually in that and got a and she got a, a fucking check cut after like one year. It wasn't wow. a lot of like their business is growing and she got a check cut off that investment. Um. So when we recorded this the first time, I asked you if you watched Lovecraft Country, and I'm sure you've not watched it since. No. Okay. They, Lovecraft Country, as well as uh, Watchmen with Regina King, both um, the Tulsa riots have a part in the story. I don't want to say it's like integral but they do have an integral part it, it does have an integral part of the story i still absolutely think you should go and watch lovecraft country because you like sci-fi um and it's sci-fi the wild shit is happening and they're black like it's cool to see I've been realizing lately, I want to watch more TV with people of color. And while there's plenty of film and TV with people of color, it doesn't tend to have the budget, you know, like it, it looks very much like a, a co I don't want to say a college project. I never want to be that disrespectful, it's but a B plus. it's a B, it's B ish. <laughs> um, and I think more that's starting to change and Lovecraft Country had a real budget and it shows and I really enjoyed it. I can't wait for the second season. You should watch it. Um, not even just for the Tulsa stuff, obviously, but the show itself is is good. But yeah, we're not going to get into the dark cloud of, of that part because it's nasty. Yeah, we really want you. I want you to take some time right now. And pull out your phone and Google Tulsa, Oklahoma, Greenwood District, right? You can Google the Tulsa, Oklahoma race riot if you want to of 1921 when they burned it down. But Google Tulsa's Greenwood District and, and go check that out. Because why, we, why I thought this was important to bring up in this episode is because this was a place where these were entrepreneurs that could have been doing fine anywhere. But because of the discrimination that existed there... They were forced to only do business really among their own people. They only could do business in that area, and they were able to make that thrive and work. And this was not the only place that did it. This is one of the more well-known places from that era. But in the early parts of uh, Jim Crow, black people were thriving mm -hmm. pretty well in a lot of ways until the Great Depression and then all the other oppressive things that came to be after that. Um, in certain ways, they were thriving, not all the ways. The yeah, of course. Constant threat of death and violence for yeah. whites, but. And I think 
you know, the Tulsa situation also goes to show that, like, because of the discrimination, they had to set up this block for themselves. They had to do business with each other. They were still able to create a booming community, you know, like a financially successful and lucrative community at, amongst themselves. And the whites hated it. So much so that it's like one of the worst, like domestic terrorism, terroristic, you know, events that happen in this country. We don't talk about it. Um, and that just really goes to the fabulous education system that we have because we should. That was a terroristic um, attack, but let's get out of here because. So we'll do that another day. <laughs> we're going to fast forward 50 years into our next uh, piece of this, which is a very bright spot. So we want to talk about black student unions. So going into the 1960s, up until that point, very few black students went to college, mm -hmm. not because they didn't great, great scores. Like I said earlier, Penn States and Ohio States and the Auburns of the world said, niggas is not allowed. You niggas, it cannot be here. No. And so, literally, we're saying that on the rejection letters. <laughs> there's this popular letter that's going around about somebody got rejected from Harvard, and it's like, look, we can't let you in because you're of the Negro race. Mm -hmm. And so, sorry, not sorry. And so, during the 1960s, though, guess what? The Civil Rights Act got passed. And so, this, there were several civil rights acts that have been passed in the United States. This is not the only one. This is the most recent. Well, this is the biggest one of recent era. There were several. That's not the point of this. But I do want to bring that up. There were several aspects of the civil rights bills. Yeah. And so one of them was the integration to allow students to go, uh, black students to go to these white universities, but also the creation of programs to allow low-income students as well as um, black students and people of other cultures to be able to go to these colleges. There's a particular program called the TRIOS program, TRIO as in like three, and it was to allow low-income students, veteran students, and then one other population of students to be able to be helped to go to school. And out of that also created a program like called um, Urban uh, Urban Pathways. God, I should know that. Um, Upward Bound. That's what it is. Upward Bound. So we, I never had Upward Bound, but I know a lot of people. Wait, can I just, can I ask you how you got from... What did you say? Urban path? What was the first thing you said? All right. So urban pathways. So there was a, there used to be a charter school in Pittsburgh called Northside Urban Pathways. Word. I don't even know if it might still be a thing. And when I was thinking about kids who were in a part of Upward Bound, they were kids from schools like that. Can I ask you another question? Because, and I'm going to be honest and vulnerable. I do not know what a charter school is. I never even heard of that until I went to Slippery Rock and I knew mad people, like a lot of people from Pittsburgh go to like these charter schools. But what is that? Is it a public school? Is it a private school? Like It's a charter school. So the best way that I can describe a charter school and listeners, you can email us and correct us if you want, if you know better. A charter school is a private school that gets state funding. Oh, so okay. basically a group of independent people decide to start a school, but they don't make it a private school. They can still get state money and they have, they have the operation of the school, but they just have to attend to certain state guidelines. Are students paying a tuition? Sometimes. Okay. 
Not always, but sometimes. Okay. I mean, at any point I could have Googled this. I just <laughs> never did. <laughs> no, and it's actually a very big political consensus point among school districts because charter schools can pull kids from anywhere, but they mm -hmm. also mess with the state funding mm -hmm. in which districts they uh, are in. Right. Very interesting. I need to look more into this. I think, yeah, I think you'll find it's a very spicy topic, actually. Yeah. So I remembered Dr. Umar Johnson talking about a charter school yeah. or something. I don't use him as a real, like, I would, let's get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> let's get out of here. The king of the hoteps. Jesus Christ. Let's get back. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> so at these universities, right? I want you, you've listened to this podcast a lot, listener. I want you to imagine being a young black man from West Philadelphia, born and raised, right? And walk to the campus of Ohio State University, the Ohio State University. This is not an attack at them. This is plenty of other schools. That's just the one that comes to mind. And you are the, the first black students on campus. Guess just immediately how unwelcomed you might feel and how awkward you might feel and how unheard you might feel, right? Niggas want to touch your hair. They want to ask you, can you dance? They're going to assume that you're stupid. Hey, how did you get into this school? Like, you got to deal with all that, right? And you just want to get an education. You know I'm going to argue that the first black person that went to Ohio State didn't, they maybe got some of that interest, but they mostly got harassed and terrorized, you know? They were probably actually football players. Do you think so? Hmm. Something to look into. <laughs> I bet most of those first people to go to those schools were like football players. Um, because the only type of niggas they wanted. Anyways, so so at these schools, at at all right, we're gonna move on. At San Francisco <laughs> State University in 1966, there were different organizations there, right? Black people come together. Hey, we come together because you know niggas want to, you know, get together and, and talk about nigga shit. And <laughs> Play spades, you know, drink some crown, uh, talk shit, talk shit the way they want to talk. Talk the same shit all the white students were talking about, but talk it their own way. For sure, for sure. exactly. Yeah, that's really the big piece of that. They want to do the same shit the white people are doing, but in their own way. Yeah, and make fun of the whites. Come on, you can't. You as a black person can't make fun of the whites at this time. It's not going over well. Not with them. Sit my drink. <laughs> Word. So. <laughs> So at these schools, you had things arise over the course of time. Because remember, there were still HBCUs, these black colleges. So people were still going to college. Um, you had these Negro Student Associations. You had the fraternities and sororities that were only black uh, admitted. And then you also had the uh, more radical people who were like the more revolutionary type, right, that were going to the universities. Well, at San Francisco State University, their idea came to merge all of these groups. And so a group of gentlemen... Um, and came together and said, you know what, we're going to merge these groups. And to actually be able to have a black voice on campus. And so the first black student union emerged in that campus. They actually did a student strike in 1968 to be able to create an ethnic studies department there. There were no black studies. There were no ethnic studies at all at any of these colleges, really. And so their strike actually led to the creation of an ethnic studies program. And when they created their Black Student Union, there were some people a few miles up the road that said, hey, that's pretty cool. How do we get one? And they helped them get one. 
And over the course of the next few decades, these exploded across the country because they're like the black voice of campus. And a lot of these schools, black people made up anywhere from three to 10% of the university, mm -hmm. anywhere from one to 10% of the university. And so these organizations allowed these black students to have a voice, to be able to have spaces made for them, um, to feel welcome on the university. Because it's not just because, oh, there are a pocket of people we want to be made welcome. It's got America had been racist for, four, for almost 400 years. And so them being on campus was just another way for America to express their racism. So they needed a space away from that. Yeah. Um, and you're going to get, well, maybe you should get into yeah. how they support students and then I'll make my point. So at these universities, they help be a hub for student growth. If you've never been around black people, you probably don't know how to recruit them to come to your school. So they help with being able to get more uh, ethnic youth to come to school. They allow to be alumni connections for black students. Uh, most of the people listening to this podcast, just based on who we personally talk to and our target demographic, most of you are college-educated people. <laughs> if you're not, I'm glad you're listening anyways. And so... But as you know, uh, connections take you everywhere. Mm -hmm. Who you know matters far more than what your GPA was. Mm -hmm. Who knows you matters even more than who you know. Mm -hmm. And so being able to have alumni come back and reach back for these black students was crucial because it's America in the 1960s. It, it's America in general. So, you know, there wasn't like a huge network for these black students to be able to reach out to these white professionals to get internships, to get entry level positions, to get networked to different companies. So these alumni had to do that. And so these black student unions served as ways for those alumni to connect. Um, it helped with pushing the campus to be more equitable. When we think about equ equity, being able to create systems that work best for the people who are most oppressed help everybody else win because you create more efficiency up the ladder. Things go up the ladder, not down the ladder. Mm -hmm. And so when you start working to be able to make the most oppressed people on campus, it makes the whole campus more equitable. Uh, it helps with increasing black and brown faculty on campus. And they create pressure for ethnic studies programs. And these black student unions were the trailblazers for every ethnic-centered group on a college campus that ever existed. All the multicultural organizations, all the Latino organizations, the Asian organizations, all of these different organizations on campus came after these black student unions paved the way to get them made. Yeah, so two things. The first thing I was gonna say was, you know, universities, when people are on call at college, like 18, 18 to like 22, you find out and you learn so much. You know, you're away from home for the first time. You're living amongst a bunch of different people. Um, and I think especially the, in the 60s, there was so much going on. You know, women are fighting for their rights. Black people are fighting for their rights. The wars, the fucking Vietnam and all that shit. Like, it was a very tumultuous time and the college students really paved the way for a lot of shit you know like at that age even still today I feel like once you become aware of like the world and how it's much bigger it it forces you to want like more than you knew existed um and we talk about, you know, the power that college students have, but I think it's very rare that we, you know, hone in and talk about what the college students in the 60s were doing. Like, 
we we talk about Martin Luther King, we talk about Malcolm X, and we talk about Rosa Parks. I mean, and they weren't old by any means, but there were also young people really out here making a difference. Like the that the Greensboro sit-in in North Carolina, that was college students. You know, they just like wanted to be able to eat. And they weren't able, like, people were fucking with them. And they, like, made uh, a decision that said, no, fuck that. And that happens with that age group all the time. And seeing specifically what they were doing on, like, college campuses with the BAS. Well, I'm calling it BAS because that's what we had at Slippery Rock. But essentially these... um, spaces for for black organizations and then all organizations of color and shit like that to what ends up spawning from them and the impact that they end up having on so many people's college experience think about us in 2010 you know we went to slippery rock super small black population it was 419 black students our junior year yeah um I can't actually give you the number of the whole, the whole, I don't know how many students. About 8,800. Yeah, okay. I used to know these numbers. <laughs> I was never, yeah, I never like was trying to sell, I sell Slippery Rock. Clearly we talked about my time as a mentor already. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, like BAS and just having kind of organizations that are, not even if you want to join and be active in that way, they're throwing events for you to go and meet other black people, social time. It's not just let's sit around and talk about injustice. It's also, let's just be able to relax and be black amongst each other, you know? And that's important. College is already stressful. You don't want to be fucking stressed out about being black as well. And granted, you know, Slippery Rock just had some wild shit happen a few weeks ago. Um, it's Western Pennsylvania, and we're not going to get into that. But because there are Black organizations there, they're able to come together and really fight and make a stance against it. And as a as a solid unit, you can do more than just like individuals doing wild shit. But but I wanted to focus on the fact that they're also just there as a space for Black people and people of color to be able to relax and just enjoy themselves amongst people that share experiences with them where they don't always have to look over their shoulder and fear like am I going to get accepted in this because I'm black am I going to get harassed or what you know just all the things that we tend to have to think about and deal with when we're in spaces um that tend to be more white yeah when you I like what you mentioned about the power college students have when you think about one of these more uh these revolutionary organizations the student nonviolent coordinating committee yeah. Were students, these were younger yeah. people in their early 20s being able to put their lives on the line, their livelihoods on the line to make progress in this country. Um, and these organizations have been, you know, can't say enough about how much they've helped mm-hmm. move America forward and make America start to be great. <laughs> For sure. They honestly, and I'm sure they will get an episode on when they're all on their own. That could be... That could be fun to talk about. Maybe to interview <coughs> some people that were a part of different, like, like black organizations and people that were involved, specifically at PWIs. Mm. That could be a fun future episode for us to do. We'll yeah. put it in that. 
So our last piece here, we want to uh, provide even more light to this, and this is a very modern example. So there's an organization called Black Girls Code, um, founded by Kimberly Bryant. And so Black Girls Code, their mission is to provide African-American youth with the skills to occupy some of the 1.4 million computing jobs openings uh, that are expected to be available in the United States through this year and to train 1 million black girls to code by 2040. <clears throat> so this was started in April of 2011. Kimberly Bryant, she herself is, works in IT and computer science, and she has a young daughter. Well, her daughter's like grown now, but back in 2011, her daughter was a preteen. And so they live out in Cali, and she said, oh, I'm going to take my daughter to tech camp at Stanford University. It should be amazing. And her daughter had a good time at tech camp, but she was like, wow, my daughter is like the only black girl there, and it's mostly white boys over there at this tech camp. And they're like 11, 12 years old. So she had a great time with the coding piece and yeah, overall had a good time. But socially, she was outcasted because, like, it's a black girl there. And they don't know how to talk to her. She don't know how to talk to them. So <laughs> she feels, like, not welcome. Yeah. And at the same time, Google released a study saying that they had 2% of their workforce black and 3% of their workforce only uh, of Lat Latino, Latina descent. And like 30% of the workforce was women. And so it moved her to decide, I need to create an organization. I need to create something that's going to be able to make black girls have access to being able to code. You know, when you think about schools and having access to things, if you don't know that something's a possibility for you, you're never going to try to do it. And so when we think about uh, mixed income living and having people be able to go to different schools, access Kids are talented. Kids are just kids. When they have the ability to see something that they would want to do, that moves them to do it. But if you just never see it, you never get to do it. And so that's why Black Girls Code was created. But it was made for black girls because, like, black girls in Wilkinsburg are not exposed to computer coding. You yeah. know, black girls in Harlem are not exposed to computer coding. And as you all know listening right now, Coding and computer science and IT are one of the fastest growing sectors of work in the United in the world, mm -hmm. and so it's one of those things you don't want to get left behind. And so, over these last ten years now, she's created fourteen different chapters across the country, and they have uh, dozens and alumni now out of this program who may have never gotten into computer science at all if it wasn't for Black Girls Code. And so this is an organization you could go look at them, look them up right now. You could donate to them. You could figure out how you can help out. Um, but it's a really cool thing and an example of how these Black organizations are very important to be able to help the country forward. You need more fields. You need more diversity in these fields. And not just so Black people can benefit from having a more higher paying jobs and access Things, but other people who work in those sectors are in a diverse work environment. They're getting more ideas that come from different backgrounds and demographics and life experiences. That's going to help all of these companies move forward. Everybody needs access to these spaces, and everybody needs access to these spaces in a diverse way that allows them to grow. And so, this is another organization to help move everybody forward. Yes. Um, 
this is why representation is so important and when you realize that there isn't any representation and you just have to essentially create something you know Kimberly Bryant um I was gonna make a joke about her being my cousin like when you started it but then Wait, I she's your cousin no oh here's your name that was a joke next slide <laughs> uh, <laughs> I feel so dumb <laughs> Yo, when I was younger, I used to tell people Kobe Bryant was my cousin, RIP. I obviously don't do this anymore. I haven't done it since I was a small child. Um, but there was like a handful of people that I told Kobe Bryant was my cousin. And there were a few people that knew that my country and, you know, that, you know, Kobe Bryant was like in Italy for a while. And I remember like concocting a story and it just like made perfect sense. And so I had people like there was two separate sets of siblings that believed me <laughs> um <laughs> wow what a wild time i don't even <laughs> i don't even put in the effort to tell stories like that anymore but <laughs> i was just uh, i was wild um but yeah so this is why representation is important uh the coding shit obviously like there are some things that obviously can't be digital. You know, you have to experience them in person. But really, we're at the beginning, the beginning infant stages of the internet still. And it's only going to get crazier. Like when you think about like sci-fi shit, holograms and all of this stuff that's really based out of the zero one, the binary code shit. Um you know, more people need to do that. And yes, like it can't just be from the same, the same type of people can't keep producing, you know, all of that work or it's going to get, it's going to get pigeonholed. It's going to get stuck in a box because they can only provide what their experience enables them, you know, to bring to the table. So shout out to Kimberly Bryant. Um, if you know anyone, any young girls that might be interested in coding or you're interested in just knowing more so you can share the information, definitely uh, check that out. Maybe we can do... I'll that in the show notes. Yeah, we can add that in the show notes. We can maybe do a little post so people can, like, go to the page. Um because that's important. And, you know, I think, especially with this past year and us being on Zoom and all the all the people that are trying to create digital content and create different meet like platforms. And while I don't really have an understanding of the, the, the depth of coding, and I'm also not interested, um, I know that it is vital. So it's something that I'm happy that you picked this because it, 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 it's something that's presently happening and something that we can maybe send people to and support. So, but this happens because a, a woman sent her daughter to a tech camp and there was no other black girls there. And why is that? It's not because black girls aren't interested. That can't possibly be it, you know? Yeah. So, hmm, that was a lot, Donald. Uh, thank you. I think hopefully this audio is much better. We don't have to do Sounds this. Sounds way better. Time. I didn't catch any freezes. Shout out. To yeah, them. I'm not getting yeah. that yet. They don't get that. Yet. <laughs> We're not using Zoom way. though. We're not using Zoom. Um, 
at the top of the show, I said I had some fuck yous, but we're like nearing an hour and I just don't, I don't know if I want to go to bed angry. I don't <laughs> I want a positive want to... tip, so shout out to them. I to wrap myself up. <laughs> Savannah's about to tap out, y'all. <laughs> if i start i'm just i'm just gonna get red and start talking and i don't want to do that oh no no but um i'll have a hit him up for um um, maybe next next recording oh my gosh but yeah we wanted to make sure that that got clear so hopefully you got to get some good information understanding black student unions if you were never a part of one i'm sorry you weren't if you were one of those people that always questioned it, well, hopefully you got answered your questions. Hopefully you got your questions answered years ago, though. Um, you know, hopefully you got to check out some, you know, you've, you've pulled up that tab on your phone to learn about Tulsa when you get off of this call. And, you know, if you're feeling like, oh, you know, it's great that black girls get the code, you know, go send them some money. Um, For sure. I'm sure so, we're taking donations. And we'll see about the longevity of these type of organizations. It really depends on how America becomes this true melting pot, right? Um, and going from them just being cultural interest organizations to, uh, versus being cultural necessity organizations. Yeah. Um, one more thing I wanted to add. I don't want to forget it. So la- the last episode that we dropped, we kind of talked about Black History Month and we opened with Carter G. Woodson and, you know, him creating Black History Month, well, Black History Week and it turning into Black History Month. And, you know, his his original point, his original goal was to not have a Black History Month. It was, you know, this week was necessary because people were not looking at Black people as integral and vital and legitimate parts of this country and the history and the legacy and the support that built built it into the nation that it is today. His hope was through Negro History Week, people would be taught not just about the suffering, but about all the, 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 all the things that Black people have contributed to this country. And at some point, we would just be integrated into American history, period. There wouldn't need to be this separate thing. So you saying that... <coughs> Yeah, like maybe these black, these these ethnic focus organizations won't be here forever, but hopefully they won't be here forever because people will realize these stories aren't isolated or only should be important to these groups of people. If we're talking about a whole nation, we all make up this fucking, okay, I can feel the spice coming. <laughs> We're gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take five steps back, <laughs> and we're gonna close out because I could. I could feel it. <laughs> so we want to make sure that you like, subscribe, and share this podcast with a friend. Shout yeah. out to everybody from India, and please remember. All right, being an asshole. Well, it, it sucks, but being an asshole is one thing. But if you really want to hear black people and Asian people and Latino people and black people and black people, black people, stop <laughs> talking about black issues start being a regular asshole and stop being racist bye